Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon. Joining me on the other line, don't let her tend to your bats. It's Danielle Hanley. <laughs> don't let her. Definitely don't. don't let her. Yeah. What's your take <laughs> on bats? Do you have one? Not one that I could um, articulate on this podcast that would make any sense. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, when I lived in Brooklyn. Yeah. Not Prospect Park, but there's Mount Prospect Park, which is kind of like down. You got like Prospect Park, you got the Botanic Gardens, you got Mount Prospect Park, you got the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah. Um, and if you go at like the right time of dusk during the summer, there's some bats flying around that like are cool because fully outside, there's like no enclosures, they're not close to you. I don't want any bats ever in my living space, but like, or necessarily around it, but. In the park, wide open spaces, keep them safe from the lead, iron lead, ball, paint, whatever. Keep them safe from Danielle. Probably the best way for me to articulate this is I have had a a long-standing fear of bats getting caught in my hair because that was, like, something that we were told in school, like, in elementary school. Like Who says that? I honestly don't know. You know know what? That sounds like, Danielle, that sounds like brown nostalgia for the sadly remembered 80s. Yeah. Well, there's that. And then, so, one, I have this fear of, like, bats getting stuck in my hair. Weird. But also my parents have a pool and it's like on top of the way that our property works is like there's like an acre of property, but there's a hill. So the pool is at the top of the hill and our neighbors for a very long time basically had like a jungle in their eight and their like corresponding acre. And if you were in the pool at night, which like. We would be sometimes. Yeah. You could see the bats fly overhead, and I would be like, "It is now time for me to go inside because maybe that <laughs> bat will get lodged oh in my gosh. rat's nest of a hair." <laughs> well, so we'll also keep you safe from the bats, not just the bats. Safe. Yeah, I don't want right. to tend to anybody's bats. <laughs> this has been bat talk, <laughs> not quite great books, but we promise they're related to American yeah. season two, episode eleven, <laughs> stealth. Directed by Gregory Hoblet and written by Joshua Brand. And Danielle's going to break, like, the news of whether or not there's any bat content in this <laughs> IMDb summary. Honestly, just a whole set of great segues. That, Thank you. The uh, IMDb summary for American Season 2, Episode 11 is, Elizabeth makes a shocking discovery about Kate. Philip pursues a contact for information about this new stealth technology. Stan continues his pursuit of the illegals. Not the best summary. It's obscurant. Honestly, because we've been doing Moon Knight and those summaries are just so (laughs) piss poor, this feels like, wow, we got so much information in this. Yeah, I think the reason that this, you know, is not a summary that's going to work for us is it doesn't capture the way that this episode, like, kind of finally snaps into place a bunch of the structural pieces that have been coming together at times disparately throughout the season. Doesn't it doesn't quite capture how these different pieces are connected to each other, which I think is like the big thing that at least for me happened in this episode. Yeah, because I don't love this episode as much as other Americans episodes in part because the Content on, like, a scene-by-scene basis is, I think, somewhat disjointed, Mm -hmm. even as the structural role of this episode in the season actually does some connecting work. 
Yeah. And I wonder if for me, I experienced so much of these episodes as slightly disjointed because I'm only now starting to see like the bigger picture of this season, That's right? A good point. I knew how everything fit together already, right? Yeah. And so like other ep- earlier episodes that were, that probably had like a similar level of like choppiness for me, we're just like, okay, this is an episode of the Americans where we jump between like Martha and then now there's a scene with Paige and church. And now like we're back to Philip and Elizabeth at home. I wonder if part if that is sort of part of what, what you're experiencing in this episode. I think for me, like something that was helpful, something that I liked that we've gotten a little bit more of in season two, that fe- makes it feel a little bit like mission of the week, a little bit less like mission of the week mm-hmm. and a little bit more broadly cohesive to me is like where we get pieces from earlier episodes that are coming back into play. So like the cold open with like literal, cold the, open. literal cold open in the USSR with Anton and Vasily is like, we've seen them a couple of episodes ago, a few episodes before that there was like the whole hullabaloo with Anton. Right. So like these pieces that I think a season one version of this, like we would have, we would have seen part of it and then we probably wouldn't have returned to it. We're starting to see how the repatriation of Anton is actually like key to the literal mission of the week, which is connected to like all of these other pieces that have kind of been floating around. That's a good point because it demonstrates how what could be a mostly disconnected thing of what is happening with Anton and Vasily in the Soviet Union somewhere actually is the first of two major mechanisms that and that are themes in this episode that kind of bring the structure of the season into focus or into picture because yeah. we get... Anton explained to Vasily, here are the things that I have that I know. Here are the things I can discover from ARPANET. Here are the materials that I need. And here's the computer program that I need. Yeah. Right? So we get that set up from him. And that scene itself is interesting because it actually opens not with Anton, like doing scientific and <laughs> physics yeah. and math work, but with the sex worker consort that the state has provided the companionship the state has provided as Vasily so officially and so eloquently and yet we then get and obviously there's like we can think about um, we can think about Elizabeth, we can think about Nina, we can mm-hmm. um, also think about Annalise from last week's episode that like last week's episode ends with Annalise, we get this, you know, unnamed, we don't even get a face of the sex worker or, you know, yeah. agent of the state to start with, which then transitions into Antone walking the silly through these different pieces and also being like, no, you're not being kind to me. I'm still like riven by the fact that I can't see my son. So there's the emotional right. stakes to it all that then sets up the scene between Arkady and Oleg and Nina. Yeah. And I would say also something else that in the past to me has felt disjointed, but in this episode felt less so because of the way the pieces are coming into focus, the scene between Philip and Fred, mm-hmm. which like I have in the past, like I know that Fred is important. I know that like all of those pieces, like I know it's important, but like how Fred's work directly impacts, we often find out later, right? Yes. We're, we're often like, 
oh, you were the one with the the motor or the fan, like the, the submarine thing. We see what's important about that later. This was, we hear from Anton that like, this is the technology that he needs access to this technology. And then like cut to a few scenes later and we see Philip basically asking Fred to like for an end to that technology. So like to me, even though maybe those like the scenes themselves don't feel connected, the thing that they're doing is connected. And that's something that feels like it's been building all season in a way that like hadn't been happening earlier on. Yeah, that's useful because it also points to the way that we're kind of getting to these core pieces of technology or whatever from several different angles that now are coalescing, right? Because we have Anton and Vasily in the USSR. We have Philip and Fred. We have Philip now in pursuing, potentially trying to turn John Skeevers into an agent, which we'll talk about. We also have the... Oleg and Nina running a mission on Stan that's a part of this. And we have, from the other end, the Lockheed Martin of it all, the Stan investigating the deaths of Emmett and Leanne, which started as like a catalyst for the kind of Soviet side of the show and then has now in some ways become as much a catalyst for the American slash FBI side of the show. Yeah, and I think I also see Philip and Fred as, like, the inflection point of that, too. Mm -hmm. Yes, very true. And I like the way that you've characterized it as, like, if it was earlier on the catalyst for the Soviet side, it's become the sort of driving force for, like, our engagement with Stan. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's, it's interesting to... That Stan is, like, working on a mission that is that's directly impacting the Jennings. Right. And that like the impact of the Jennings has always been like a couple of layers away with the exception of like episode one where. Or the finale to season one. Right. Right. But like those are, those stand out to me as outliers in, in like the broader arc and here when like all the pieces are coming together and it feels like the crash is coming. I don't know. That feels exciting to me. Yeah. Structurally, it feels, um, like, satisfying. Right. There's a crystallization of these different threads in relation to one another that's happening here. And I think it's useful because it's so multi-level and kind of intricately connected across, like, multiple planes or something Mm -hmm. to then have... Arkady, Oleg, and Nina, like, walk through very explicitly. Yeah. Here are the three parts of the puzzle, right? And Oleg even calls it, like, the first, the second, the third piece of the puzzle. Here's the part that, you know, that we've gotten already. Here's the part that we're using our director at S agents to try to pursue. And then here, Nina, we need you to get the echo, Eka, and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> So your computer program. Right. So that... Anton Baklanov can use it to see if this prototype that he's maybe designing is going to work or not. I was struck by the the way that we get that information from Oleg and Arkady and Nina from that conversation. Again, that felt like something different because I often feel like they are reacting to things. So we're getting that reaction and the like, 
Arkady, Oleg, Nina of it all, again, often feels like a little bit alienated from the other action. And and because they're laying out the pieces, they're doing that like exposition for us. They like are already so much more deeply intertwined with it than they, than to me they had been in earlier episodes. And that might highlights, I think, one of the structural differences of this episode and the mm-hmm. way they're doing storytelling and that we're getting the actual and confirmed Soviets doing a lot of the structural explanation or structural prime moving as opposed to it being Philip and Elizabeth. Um, and that is, this is certainly not the only time that has happened, but it's something that I think is functioning a little bit differently in this episode that maybe is doing some of the work that you're making. And in some ways that like highlights the agency of the showrunners or the people writing and directing these episodes, because there's a different version of the Americans where we actually have as the prime movers, Arkady and Oyeg and Nina and with the, you know, yeah. Jennings would be somewhat secondary, not that they're secondary, but that they play a secondary kind of structural narrative role. Yeah. Um, and so it's a choice that they're making in this episode. I think that that's right. And I think like, it's interesting to, to think against the like alternative version of this, mm-hmm. right. With the Jennings as second. And I think like one of the ways that I'm sort of absorbing this episode and the, and like engaging with the structure of this episode is that it doesn't feel like the Jennings are secondary or the like Arkady, Oleg, Nina situation is secondary, but that these things are deeply intertwined. And again, I think like Philip Fred is the inflection point of that, of that twisting together. There's a kind of irony to all of this in that the prime movers, in fact, are the center, right? The kind of nameless KGB yeah. headquarters in Moskva that we never actually see, even when we're fo- you know we're focused on Arkady, Oleg, and Nina, and we find out that Arkady is getting very explicit and like dramatic and tragic instructions yeah. from the center. We oftentimes are, of course, hearing. Elizabeth and Philip complaining about the directions that the center gives them or the center is giving them through Claudia and then Kate RIP um, (laughs) from the center. And so like behind all of this, there is actually like nameless bureaucrats behind the curtain slash and drop off. (laughs) I think and drop off still alive at this point. (laughs) The looming specter of the center feels very appropriate mm-hmm. for like political theorists to think about. <laughs> Not only that, but also just as political theorists viewing this particular show, yeah. because it situates us as viewers. There's a certain level of knowledge that we are unable to have access to, even as viewers of this show as spectators, because we never get to see at least so far, and I'm not saying whether we will or won't, like see the center or see KGB headquarters or see kind of decisions Mm. being made in Moskva um, that are then reflecting through. So there's that like power that is functioning, that is operating, that that is not visible or perceptible or graspable to us. Well, and I would also just like remind us, right? Like every time we're in, and I'm just going to say Moscow because I don't know how to speak Russian, (laughs) but I appreciate your pronunciation there. Um, 
But every time we're in Moscow, right, when we're with Philip and Elizabeth in their memories, it's like we get it in gray shade. Yeah. Right? And we get a different lens. We like get yeah. different. Yeah. Like it's less softer focus. We get yeah. those visual markers that we're not in the same universe as the rest of the show. Yeah. And there are like a ton of people around who are not named. Right. And when we get named people who are associated with Moscow, we're not in Moscow. Right. Yeah. I'm think I'm thinking of Elizabeth meeting up with like her mentor in Europe. Right. Like in, I think they're in Italy at some point earlier on. Yeah. They're in Venice and yeah. I'm going to say in Switzerland at some other point. Yeah. Yeah. When we, Maybe when we actually. get people who are associated with like the center or, or with like that sort of like more amorphous power source, when, when we get them individuated, they are not in Moscow, not in the Soviet union. And that seems to be important. It does because when we get to your point, when we see general Zhukov, yeah. it's when he has lost power in, right. K, in the KGB, right? He is, you know, waning in terms of his influence, how much, how he can exert over what Philip and Elizabeth's lives are going to look like as directorate S officers in the U.S. Zhukov is exactly who I was thinking of. And just like aesthetically, right? The show mm-hmm. is is playing around with ways to represent these things. Yeah. That seems like a point that I would like to make. So look at us. <laughs> You're welcome. We'll have you loving the MCU in no time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. I've been reading a lot of Horkheimer and we still have one MCU episode to record. Oh so my I'm sure God. that's going to be a great time for... Great for me, out. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so in the- pages church. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we should give Paige some Horkheimer. That's, I think, the solution. You know... That doesn't seem like the wrong call. <laughs> I don't want any Horkheimer, but <laughs> Paige can Paige, have it. Give Paige some Horkheimer. That's my new... Uh, Hashtag. I'm not, I'm not going to like ship characters. I'm going to ship character and theorists. That's actually a great segment Honestly, idea. we, we need to add that in. Consideration <laughs> is who this episode are we going to ship character and theorists? Write it down because we absolutely have to do it. Okay. <laughs> Theory ship. Okay. Folks, John is actually writing it down in case you were wondering. You are he- you are hearing us like figure out new uh, segments like in real time. Yeah, You're we're going to keep we're going to keep most of this in. Um maybe not the dead silence while I'm typing, but the rest of it. <laughs> I feel great about it. I feel great about it all, even the dead silence. Okay. <laughs> so, the other pillar, like structurally, characterly, characterologically, narratively, that's doing some of the assembling together of the different threads of the season, Mm -hmm. including the multiple influences on them is Jared. So like, where do you, let's maybe let's start here. How surprised or not were you when Elizabeth observes Kate and Jared meeting for pizza? wildly surprised. I have notes, Kate and Jared, unexpected. I want this to be a date, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Jared's like 16. Kate looks 16. Kate's at least 30. She looks like a very young 30. I mean, I I knew that it wasn't a date, but I was like, is this a date? Okay, sounds like Danielle is actually going to do some shipping in our future wow, segment called Theory Ship. 
Oh my god, theory ship. It is amazing. I'm already obsessed with it. We haven't even done it. <laughs> oh my god. And I was definitely last week a bit leading you on in the dossier about Jared um, and a little bit toying with your expectations about him. So I apologize for that. I honestly don't even remember because that was a full trip to Europe ago. That's true. That was two weeks ago rather than one week ago. <laughs> uh, what? Uh, I didn't feel let on. <laughs> Great. So I've clearly internalized, like Paige, some lessons from Philip and Elizabeth in emotional manipulation and how to lie to people that are important to you. Great. Seems, seems right. <laughs> seems, seems like a wonderful development in my life. Oh my god. Um okay. <laughs> okay, we can get back on track here. Jared, Kate, they're having pizza. It's not a date. Not a date. I was very surprised, obviously, by my notes. You can unexpected underline period. That's what that's like the first part of the notes. Um yeah, I was surprised in part because like Kate has seemed quite resistant to like the meddling that I think yeah. Philip and Elizabeth are doing in a way that she like known about it. Well, I think she like knew about pieces of it because the lyric stuff is connected to, yes. I don't know if she knows. I don't know if Elizabeth told her that she was going to pay this visit to Jared. Right. But I can't imagine that she didn't know that Elizabeth paid a visit to Jared. Right, because Jared would have said, oh, this social worker woman came to me. Yeah. And Kate would or have even, asked Or even just, like, I think that, like, there's some level of surveillance on Philip and Elizabeth, right? Like... It's a good question. <laughs> like, that seems like that there should be. And, or just like accounting for her, like for that missing time. I don't know. My assumption was that like Kate at least had some idea that like there had been some interaction. Yeah. And Elizabeth doesn't know what to make of it at first, oh. which is fascinating to me. Right. And so that's like, I'm not going to, I mean, we'll find out more in the next episode, yeah. but she's not sure whether this means that because Kate, the thing that surprises Elizabeth, the tips her off that something is weird and that it's not per Philip's suggestion, Kate, like checking in on Jared, taking care of him, like the KGB promised to Leanne and Emma, yeah. presumably also promised to Elizabeth and Philip. She's not disguised. She's good. She's yeah. Kate when she goes, walks into the restaurant. Yeah, I, and I think that was something that I was surprised by, too, is, like, Kate just looks like Kate, right? Like, she's not, and the question that I had there is, like, is this the first interaction that they've had or not? Because, like, there was something about the way that he said to Elizabeth, like, I'm not stupid, which was unnerving, and I think we could easily read it as, like, connected to the fact that, he basically was shown a picture of like this version of Elizabeth, Correct. right? Even short hair, right? Like the yeah. so show, social worker Elizabeth has short hair. The like police sketch of Elizabeth has short hair. Exactly, and like those like weird glasses. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, those are like eighties nostalgia times a million. Um, 
so like it was unnerving that that Jared said to Elizabeth like I'm not stupid and Elizabeth is like I know you're not stupid but like doesn't elaborate and my the when we then see Kate and Jared meeting my first thought was is part of the I'm not stupid because like he has already met with Kate at least once and has been told like about Elizabeth or has been told about his parents or like some version of this. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that conversation between Jared and Elizabeth is so fraught and so loaded. And from uh, not only Elizabeth's side, obviously so many conversations Elizabeth has in character with others, there's, a thousand times more that's happening under the surface that she can't articulate, but which is yeah. we as viewers know. And it's smart of them to have that conversation come first and then to show us Jared seeing Kate because some of like that mystery around Jared or some of that, like something's happening here feeling that you describe is more able to be present and kind of more pregnant and like its implications for the episode because it's, we haven't yet seen that he meets Kate soon after. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. Like there are multiple readings of that moment available both before we know he meets Kate and after, right. It just, it like complicates it's fur- it further. And like to go back to like where this point fits in our more general discussion, like, structurally, this is a moment where I think some of the conflict between Philip and Elizabeth and Kate, which has been brewing for quite a bit, right? And not in the same way that the Claudia conflict was there, which I feel like Claudia is coming back and I'm annoyed about it already. (laughs) That conflict had been brewing and there's something about Kate meeting with Jared that feels at once like a betrayal and also fitting another piece of the puzzle in together. Mm-hmm. Do you have any predictions about what they talked about or what we might find out about Jared now in a little early? I think, I think that Kate must have told Jared that his that his like parents were spies or some ver- maybe not fully, but like let him on that his parents were doing something and that that was like, I suspect that they meet at least at this point because like Kate knows that Stan was there. That feels like the, the impetus for this meeting and perhaps, perhaps explains why Kate's not disguised at all. I wonder also if like Kate was already like on the way back to the Soviet union. And this was like this, her mission is actually the extraction of Jared. Like it feels like the Jared stuff is maybe a little bit more important than like the series has been letting us believe it was until right now. Other than a yes to that very last point, I offer a full no comment. I'll take that no comment as every single thing I said was 1 million percent correct and I'm brilliant. Cool. Okay. Okay. I mean, definitely you're brilliant uh, regardless of whether the other things are true. Okay. Let's talk about Kate because she does die in this episode and gets a heroic from the standpoint of her and Elizabeth and Philip kind of send off in this episode. So what did you make of the scenes between Kate and Lyric or Kate sensing that somebody was in the apartment and then it does turn out that Lyric ends up being there. And then obviously that, you get the second scene between them where Lyric kills her. That felt like full, like 
visceral embodiment of Danielle Dossier. Like, like walk into the apartment. I am suspicious because one feather is like not in the right place. Right. Like it felt, I felt kinship there. Mm-hmm. What I found most interesting about that entire scene is Philip and Elizabeth, Philip more, I think than Elizabeth like has really expressed a lot of doubts in, in Kate's ability to run agents, Yes, which Kate is aware of has responded to and kind of doesn't care about, right? Like there's, there's a kind of like, I know that you're like, you're not going to like me. So I'm not going to try to make you like me. I'm not going to try to like mitigate this antagonism that's here. But this is a, this felt like a scene that was reminding us that like she is in this position because she's quite good at what she does and has like a similar skill set to Philip and Elizabeth. And a similar skill set to Lyric, right? So she locks herself into the bathroom, has had the gun stashed in one of the towel towel towers uh, or cabioles. Mm hmm does something with the toilet paper and like <laughs> turns out to be a secret decoded message to Elizabeth and Philip written on in code on the empty toilet paper tube. Um, and we don't get that until the very end of the episode, right? We see her kind yeah. of take all of the toilet paper off and then we don't know what happens. So yeah. she's like able to sneak that by Lyric. Lyric doesn't find that even though yeah. he finds the rest of her secret compartments they're kind of equals in the fight, even though Lyric yep. is like a much bigger guy. Her and Lyric like have a kind of equalish fight. Like yeah. Lyric gets, you know, somewhat beat up as well, even if eventually Lyric does like subdue Kate. And she doesn't give up any information to Lyric verbally. Yeah. And Lyric even says, you know, just so you know, you're you were good at your job. Like you protected your agents. I don't actually care about you so much of course yeah. means he's going to kill her but right. like he is not ultimately after her and so she succeeds in the thing that to your point philip had doubted she would be successful at yeah and i think like what was interesting to me is like i never thought she was going to give anything up no right like mm-hmm. and i think that even with the sort of like t- tension between her and Philip that has, that had built all season. Like that didn't make me doubt her ability. I like definitely doubted her. I definitely have doubted in the past, like the direction that she's pointed in, like where she's going, like where her loyalties lie. But like the, it's interesting because I think there's a way to read the the Philip Kate conflict as like a different manifestation of the same conflict that Philip and Elizabeth have with like the steadfastness to the the center and the ideology and the like and and like the mission. Um, I think like that's the thing that Philip doesn't have, but it's never been the thing that Kate didn't have. Yeah, and I wonder if the show is doing a little bit of a. Kate is a conventionally attractive young woman. And so maybe she's doubted by men that are in the same field as her. I don't know whether or not that's intended or actual, but like, I think it's a possibility. Well, and like the point I was going to make a a moment ago was like, it's maybe a, it's maybe a manifestation of like Philip's misogyny, 
which doesn't often rear its head, but like there are he's, places. He's got a certain like masculine ethos yeah. underlying, which we've seen come out yeah. in a number of ways already. Yeah. And so, which I think we also, I think we also see that like masculine ethos, the toxic masculine ethos come out in Larry Cause I think he's kind of surprised that like she went tit for tat with him and he's he's not like oh my god I can't believe you were good at your job but like there is an element of prize or like uh, just like, like a grudging admiration or appreciation exactly. of what she has done exactly the, like the affective charge of that is mm-hmm. not like mm-hmm. positive it's game recognized game right yeah a little bit like begrudgingly exactly yes, like you begrudgingly said. game recognized yeah. game what happens. With Kate in the way that it connects to Elizabeth and Philip is also notable and that yeah, and we've talked about like who is the primary versus secondary actors yeah. who's reacting a little bit and not only for structural narrative reasons, but also because of what happens to Kate and because of what had happened to George in the previous episode, the phone operator. Right. Kate, uh, Elizabeth and Philip just have less information. They're not able to communicate through their two primary modes of communication, right? Whether Kate or the phone operator system setting things up. And so that sets them a little bit off. And then they have the proper intuition to go to Kate's apartment in response. Yeah, which also feels like a bit of a risk, right? Like, because, like, where's Larrick right now is the question question that I have at the end of this episode. Great question. Like, it felt like there's a a version of this episode where, like, they get ambushed by Larrick because he knows that they're going to come for her if she's, like, silent for too long. It's a good question. Like, what? why didn't Larrick stay and assume somebody would come to check on Kate? Um, yeah. And Elizabeth and Philip don't come in disguise, which is no. what I found notable. I was actually surprised yeah. that they were, came as themselves. Like they got, they have hats on or whatever, but that's it. Yeah. But I wonder if, well, they don't know that it's Larrick who's like doing all of this, right? Yeah. They don't vocalize that. Well, I guess because they don't know that they, for as far as they know, Larrick is still in, yeah. in Central uh, America. Yeah a country in Central America. Because I was like, oh, is part of the reason why they don't go in disguise because Larrick knows them in disguise? That doesn't... They they don't know that Larrick's there, so... Yeah. 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 So... But they... And so all they get is, they, you know, Larrick has removed Kate's body. Right. And so all that Elizabeth and Philip have to find is the toilet paper tube with the secret message of get Jared out. And that's it. And it's the end of the episode. Is them decoding that it's get Jared out. Which speaks, I mean, kind of to what you were speculating about in terms of Jared just a minute yeah. ago. Yeah, and I think that's where the speculation comes from. Also, I wonder to what extent was... We don't know this because the last time we saw Kate before this, right, or and before the Jared meeting is we see her get that weird phone call. Correct. So we don't know. I wonder, like, I'm interested in the, in the dominoes that fell between the phone call and the, and like her death, because the version of Kate that's bad at her job does not, is not impacted by that weird phone call. She's just like, I don't know. Telemarketer called me right. Or wrong number. 
the version of Kate that's good at her job, which we know from Larrick that he thinks she's good at her job. Yeah. So like we can sort of take that as a yes. more objective Indeed. point of view means that perhaps the Jared meeting is connected to the Larrick phone call. It's a good point. As is perhaps, you know, was the gun always in the towels or, you know, was it more, was it in a different place, but then she got the phone call and made it more available to her. Like, okay, if it all goes to shit, I can run into the bathroom and I know I have this gun ready here. I think that's, that's to me a both and because like Mm -hmm. the gun, the bathroom feels like I just watched the accountant on the plane um, where Anna Kendrick like runs into the bathroom because it's the only door that locks in her apartment. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's a version of like the bathroom is where you stash things because yeah. you can lock things. And there's also like heavy things to throw at someone. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Not the first bathroom scene of season two. Remember Yossi and Philip and the fight in the bathroom. Oh, back yeah. in oh my God. Season. That was... Your favorite character. My favorite character. Yossi Atabasede. That was what they said in the episode. Um, (laughs) You're welcome. But I did not appreciate the farting sounds on the toilet. Right. No, thank you. Right. That's true. No, thank you. Okay. Anyway. (laughs) Do we want to maybe shift from thinking about Kate to thinking a little bit about Nina. We absolutely should because Nina in her situation comes to the foreground in this episode is part of the structure of the episode as relates to the structure of a season. And in fact, the first two seasons as a whole, because Nina's the multiple layers, the different double, triple, quadruple, whatever agent she is, all of those turns come together in this episode. But then there's even her structure within the episode itself. So there's that scene fairly early on in the episode where she is with Arkady and Oleg. And then they're like, here are the different pieces of the puzzle. Here is your role in that puzzle. You need to get the computer program from Beeman. And then we get this like incredibly sweet touching scene between her and Oleg, where Oleg has like tracked down a relevant era, young pioneer ski Lennon pin to give to her because she said that she never had one and wanted one. And Olya gives like goes with the very sappy, but like I still was very touched by the line of it's a you know a lucky pin because it's so close to your heart, like to your symptom. Yeah. Um, which was just like adorable. And then Arkady reveals to Olya that A, Nina actually committed treason first, and B if she's not successful at getting the computer program from Stan, she will be sent back to Moscow for a trial and presumably execution. This is a part of the episode that I remain confused by because particularly the reveal, it's not clear to me why Arkady reveals this information to Oleg. Why now, as opposed to another time, why at all? Right? Because it, I'm confused, so I put that out there for you. So I think the why not earlier is because it's only recently that Arkady has come to trust Oleg, like as a yeah. good person who's not just a fail son who made his way to a yeah. cool KGB posting, but like actually has some connection to, they've had some bro time with, so on and so forth. 
but the why tell Oleg, I'm not, I don't think it's as much of a question about Arkady telling Oleg that Nina had first committed treason and like then came to him. Although maybe that's, that's it too. But on the specific, why does he tell Oleg that if Nina doesn't succeed, she's being sent back to, back to Moscow when Arkady says, my hands are tied, I cannot tell this to Nina. So I think that there's a possibility that Arkady recognizes he can't tell Nina this, but he expects that Oleg will, even though Oleg's not supposed to, and thus he tells Oleg, and Oleg does indeed then tell Nina that if you fail, you're going to be sent back to Moscow. So I'm wondering if like Arkady expected Oleg to then tell Nina, and because Arkady like has a deep respect and admiration for Nina, even given what Nina has done, like uh, that is the read that I've settled on. That makes sense to me. I think like part of what's, what was tripping me up is like, it feels like a move against Nina, even though Arkady has mm-hmm. this, like has demonstrated a, a like love and respect for Nina. Right. Like, this whole like be a triple agent comes about because like he wants to protect her. Yeah. But and we get the line where like, I'm fond of Nina and I know you are too. He tells Oleg. he tells Oleg. Yeah. Yeah. Which like that I read as, does he know that they're sleeping together? <laughs> also a possibility. Right? Yeah. Like he's skilled. And I think, even though this is a Lev Gorn slash Arkady fan podcast, fan podcast, we also have to raise the possibility that Arkady has made the judgment that there have been other times where he's like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't care if this isn't what Moscow has you know, wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. And here he's like, the center Moskva has tied my hands and I have no cover. And so I can't yeah. do anything. And that's been the situation at other times in previous episodes and he's gone ahead and done the thing anyway. So there is a little bit of Arkady being like, I don't like it, but like I'm choosing to let this be a battle. I'm not going to fight the center on. Yeah. Like I have, there are other battles and if, if there's a battle coming up, like I want to sort of save that. Mm -hmm. I think that assessment makes, makes sense, but like still just like within this episode, it's, I think as you've demonstrated, it's like there's so much of it that's open for interpretation when it feels like a lot of Arcadi stuff isn't often open for interpretation. Yeah. It's like what makes the Nina, when Nina goes to Stan, like in that scene in the episode and she's like, I like, I'm going to be sent back, like help me on the one hand, right? Like that's manipulative on her part, right? Mm -hmm. We like can see the manipulation, but I'm just, I'm always I'm not sure if Nina wants to be the triple agent or if she wants to get out of there. Like where Nina actually stands in all of this is like, is hard for me to locate sometimes. Absolutely. Because Nina is like, this is kind of her, maybe her last card to play is, is there a real possibility? Oleg was like, if there's any ability you have to run, you should do it. And maybe this is her feeling out whether that's in fact a real possibility that she could try to like enact in her life. And I wonder if that's part of what she's doing there. Cause I agree. Like, I don't think it's obvious whether, I don't think it's obvious that she's 100% just playing Stan when she says, help get me out of here. 
Exactly. Like, that's exactly right. And again, like, the... The open for interpretation part of that, I think, is narratively productive. It is something the show and that Nina has earned, right? Like, I think it's a testament to how well this part is acted and, and how, like, important it is that we can ask the question of, like, is she just trying to pull one over on Stan? Or is, like, does she actually, like, want him to extract her? Um, like, I think that that's, that says something about like the level of skill happening here. Yeah. Because whether she has genuine feelings for Stan or not, she definitely has genuine feelings for Oleg. And that's, I think, coloring the way that we as an audience are interpreting the scene of her and Stan. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think until the first episode that they sleep together, I was not sure of where Nina's intentions lie mm-hmm. with Oleg. And I think, again, like something that has become clear to me in the last few episodes is that like Nina does harbor like some affection for him, right? Yeah. It's not just for convenience. Yeah. Which was, you know, and here's some kind of structural mirroring within the season. That was the ARPANET ec- episode. It's the exactly. end of that where Nina also has successfully um survived the lie detector test yeah. so like to then have this moment of crisis for her come in this episode at which the spy geopolitical plot focuses on these pieces of technology including something that has been taken via the arpanet at the same time that like her situation comes to a head is a smart little thing the show has done Agree. Fully agree. <laughs> Nina's also a window on to depress Stan. Depress Stan, man. I depressed Stan made me depressed. It made me sad. <laughs> I was like, Stan, like the, the Sandy Stan convo. I was like, what's happening here? Except that Sandy's hair looked very good. The marriage advice from Gad, like there's just like too many the the fact that like stan's like basically begging philip to have a beer with him yeah just like really rough (laughs) well there's there's several different parts of that i to make a note on the gad part we've had stan show up at gad's house and seen that like Gad and his wife seemingly have a functional marriage. So we got a little bit of that coloring to to set up the marriage advice. But of course, the actual marriage advice that Gad gives to Stan is like, it's a bummer. There's no timeouts in a marriage. And it's wrapped up in the work conversation, right? So it's like, even if Gad might in some situation be a source of good advice, he's not going to be a source of good advice as his boss at the fucking counterintelligence division. Well, and also as like someone who knows that he's banging an operative, right? Like, and who knows how important that sexual relationship is to the mission, even if it, even if he is literally watching it tear Stan's life apart. Exactly. Correct. (laughs) Uh, Gad, not someone I want marriage advice from. No, or at least only if he nope. retired and was like helping bros be one percent less broy. 
I feel like your view of Gad is too rosy. <laughs> I also have seen more. I mean, no, I'm just Gad, Gad's a like shitbag, but uh, yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. he's less of a shitbag than others. <laughs> agree, agree. I I agree with that. Uh, fair. Um, On that uplifting note, should we go to the segments? <laughs> yeah, I think segments is uh, is where it's at. Let's, All right. Let's- We've been lucky to get some Daniel dossier already, but let's fully open it up for the week. Okay, my note on the pin, which you mentioned earlier, that I have, uh, this is in my notes. The pin is a camera, right? Like, that was my, I was like, I don't trust anybody. The pin is a camera. The, um, <laughs> like, the Young Pioneers pin. It's got to be a camera, right? You can't just let a sweet moment between Oyeg and Nina be a sweet moment between Oyeg and Nina. There's got to be a conspiracy. One million percent. (laughs) That's a read, but it's so correct. Fair. (laughs) The other thing that, like, piqued my interest was there are multiple mentions of the bug in Gad's office, which, like, they has existed for a very long time. Of course, it goes back, right? Like, because Gad gets unfired. Um, But there are multiple mentions of the bug in this episode, multiple mentions of, like, what they hear from the bug, multiple mentions of, like, the possibility that they'll hear more stuff. I just feel like, to me, that coupled with, like, the camera shots of the pen, that's the bug from last week. They're going to find that bug. That bug is, they are going to figure that out. They're going to fit, like, uh, Kate's already dead. Martha, your time is coming. No comment. <laughs> Would you like to revisit any of your previous Kate entries in the dossier uh, upon her demise in this episode? I was right. <laughs> Some I of the time. Right that Kate was going to die, right? You were worried um, Kate was a double agent. I was worried Kate was a double agent. This episode proved me wrong on that, and I'm I'm happy to be wrong. I was right that Kate's time was a coming. <laughs> also, like predicting that people are going to die in the Americans, like it's a it's a it's a real guess and also the safe guess. That's fair. That's fair. I I'm I'm interested to see what other of my guesses pan out to be correct in terms of season two deaths. Yeah. Nina and Martha are on the list, if I remember Nina correctly. Nina and Martha are on the list. Okay. Nina seems less likely at this moment, but Martha, she wasn't in this episode. That, like, You're worried that has worried you. Worried is a little strong. <laughs> That's right. You're not a you're not a big fan of Martha. No, but Martha, this is my second mention of the accountant in this podcast episode, but Martha is in the accountant. Um, Never seen it. I don't think I've ever seen anything else Allison Wright has been in. It's the only other thing I've seen her in. Um, It's a very minor role. You would not like this movie. I do not recommend it. But I watched it at my parents' house, and then I rewatched it on the plane back from London. Great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah, it's Ben Affleck running around shooting people. It's like, fine. (laughs) All right. Should we go to Gloss? Yeah, let's go to Gloss. We haven't had the chance to touch on Paige yet. And nonetheless, when we have, it's that you made a comment early on in the episode, Danielle, that that's another kind of structural thing that has come into focus a little bit more here at the end. So how did you react to Paige's couple of moments in this episode? 
Yeah. What I, what was interesting to me about Paige is the way that this conflict between Philip and Elizabeth that materializes through Paige, but that is once again, but that's also a conflict that, that we have seen in, in many other forms throughout the series, like the conflict over sort of like ideology and the mission and like, there's that. The other piece of it, though, is there is a another version of that conflict, which is that, like, Philip keeps switching, like, Correct. his position on this, which to me reads as a parallel to the, like, Philip is not committed enough to the mission or the doubt that Elizabeth had, like, from the beginning, that they're, like, the switching back and forth or, like, the inability to commit to just, like, he wanted to beat the priest up, he doesn't, or the pastor up, he doesn't do that, right? Like, the, like, the ultra-violent angle that he took, or the, like, I guess I'm going to accept this angle, which is where we, what we get in this episode, that, like, wishy-washiness around Paige and, and, like, the youth group in the church feels like a character flaw that keeps coming back with Philip. And I think that we can read Philip's wishy-washiness or whatever is in part a reaction to, because it's the same episode as Marshall Eagle, both in which he tears the pages of the youth Bible out and almost goes and beats up or kills Pastor Tim. Right. Both of those things almost happen in the very yeah. same episode in Marshall Eagle. And it's after that, so the subsequent two episodes now at this point, where his position has softened on what Paige is, what he is okay with Paige doing. It just feels like Philip is needier about everything, everything, and his kids' affection, like. Like Philip is just needier than Elizabeth, which I think goes back to like we've had discussions about like capitalism and communism and the way in which both of these characters sort of like embody a relationship to those different ideologies, right? And there's like there's something about Philip's neediness that that just like pushes me to read him as like this capitalistic automaton. I don't hmm. know. Interesting. I want us to revisit that very question in early season three. Great. Perfect. Well, a couple of other things about Paige, and part of it is this contrast between Philip and Elizabeth, and that is mm-hmm. at the first scene we get with Paige in this episode is she just goes and it's like, I have a question for you to Elizabeth. Can you give me kind of one good reason why I can't go to, you know, camp this summer? And <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth's answer is, I'm your mother. So that's also like speaks to this. Philip is needy and or flexible and or willing to kind of compromise on when it comes to his kids and their affection or whatever. And Elizabeth is just not. So that's kind of part of it. But Paige obviously doesn't accept that and doesn't accept that in kind of like a, like teenage, this is ridiculous. And it kind of is ridiculous uh, in the moment. But then we get her coming to see Elizabeth and Philip towards the end of the episode. And she's like, I, something to the effect of, you know, you have control over what I do while I'm living in this house until I'm 18. But who I am and what I think and believe is mine. So she's yeah. trying to do this differentiation that is in part teenage rebellion, in part self-development. And what she doesn't know is also response or resistance to the fact that her parents are secret spies. 
the moment that Paige said, like, you don't control, like, what I think and, like, da-da-da, I was like, Hobbs. We're in Hobbs mode right now. It was like, you can't control... You can, like, try to control as much as possible, but you cannot, like necessarily access the contents of one's mind, which is like literally the premise of, and the problem for Hobbes in Leviathan. And there's also like some Rousseau social contract angle too. Like how do you force someone to be free? How do you kind of redirect people's individual wills towards the general will? Like these sorts of things as well. Yeah, totally. So a little little bonus cave. If if you (laughs) will. But there's, Two juxtapositions about Paige I want to note before we move on. One is that that self-assertion that she makes, um, that taking up of the Hobbesian challenge that she uh, adopts at the end of the episode, is contrasted with both the very general manipulation that her parents are running against her constantly since her and before her birth, And then more specifically, this manipulation around, well, of course, Elizabeth is like, oh, you want to go protest the air and air force base with your church group? This is the best possible world for Elizabeth because she gets to give, give the air of giving in to Paige. But in fact, it's like, oh, I'm, you're giving in, but actually I'm giving in. But in fact, you're moving closer to my views and contesting the U.S. military industrial complex. Like the manipulation of that moment, which happens at the same time as Paige's self-assertion, both of I think and what I think, what I believe, who I am is mine. And also I came up with this cool idea and I'm going to assert that I want to do this in spite of your resistance to it. So it like neutralizes Paige's self-assertion that this is the thing she wants to go do because it's so easy for Elizabeth to say yes, including surprising Philip. And the second juxtaposition is that we have in this episode Every, you know, we, it's structured as we've discussed around the Soviets acquiring weapons technology. Yeah. And at the same time, Elizabeth is upholding pages, protesting, resisting the development of military technologies. So there's like a personal political split that's happening. Huh. Oh, interesting. So like one point on that and then a point on like Elizabeth's mode of engagement here. So it's interesting to think about the personal political split here because I think there's also a way to read it as like perfectly consistent. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Right. They're just like different ways that it's like all of it can be true, which <laughs> is like yeah. the the sort of totalizing part of ideology, right? And this kind of the the position of the show is often, let's just assume all of this is correct or yeah. none of it is correct. And aren't those kind of the same thing? <laughs> the, the horseshoe, the horseshoe theory oh, of the no. Americans. No, 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 pass. <laughs> <laughs> I take that back, editing it out, it's gone. <laughs> the other thing I was going to say, though, is like, I think what I needed in that scene, I needed Elizabeth to protest a little bit. Like, there needed to be one more round of like, I don't know. I'm not sure I trust you or da, 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 da. And then, and then like, well, you know what, actually like, this is a good cause. And I see that you're making some good decisions. Like there needed, I needed there to be like a little bit more of the conflict, like articulated so that the, the like acquiescence felt real. Was that, would that be more or less manipulative? I think it would be more manipulative. Yeah, I think so too. I think I wanted more manipulation. I think so too. 
Yeah. From Paige to Henry. Obviously. The forgotten <laughs> the, one. Oh, the forgotten one. He got a lot of screen time in this episode. <laughs> For Henry, at least. He got to interview Stan. Stan, his hero. <laughs> Stan. In my brain, I was hero. like, did Philip make that up because he needs to get info? Because it, it comes, it's the cut like right after, <laughs> like, we need this information, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, is this how Philip's going to get the information? Like, this is sloppy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I mean, this is, <laughs> even though Stan is losing his son as like a as in his role as a father figure he also gets this admiration from henry yeah we've like, seen it points already and yeah, it's, it's just endearing. like and it's you know stan gives henry something that philip doesn't yeah that henry doesn't realize is in part tied to the fact that philip is a soviet agent but it's also like on a more concrete level, like what does Henry consciously or not understand that he's missing in his familial dynamics? Yes. Yeah. And Which Stan like, has a cool job. That's not a travel agent, quote unquote. What Henry but, thinks is a cool job. But the coolest part is that Stan not only reads comic books, but he reads FBI comic books. That's where he got the idea for this job when he was younger. Is cool the right word? No. <laughs> I felt very seen by the fact that Stan wanted to be an FBI agent since she was a kid. And it's because and you want to be an FBI, FBI agent. No, you were it's, a kid? it's the, it's the pride. It's like, Putting on Front Street the propaganda nature of mass culture that gets literalized and spoken and voiced by Stan, who we've seen do bad things as an FBI agent, including, like, murder somebody in cold blood. And we did some investigating, and this was historically accurate. There's a special agent series in the... I was just going to say, which is wild. Like, the historical accuracy is wild to me. <laughs> Special Agent series in the 40s, and then a comic series from the 60s, literally the FBI, which is presumably what young Stan read. How does that make you feel? It makes me sad for when I was younger and I, like, loved McGruff the Crime Dog. Uh, I'm with <laughs> you there. Uh, I think I associated him with Pizza Hut, which, like, we were not allowed to eat when I was younger because we're from Long Island. And, like, I don't even think a Pizza Hut could thrive there. You have Um, to get, like, pizza from whatever the pizza place in town is or a town away or whatever. We have multiple pizza places in the Hanley House. No, I I understand. Oh, like. Like. Like, you like one, Kate likes a different one. So Well, we have that. But it's also, like, are we interested in, like, Sicilian pie? We go to one place. We go to Emilio's. Are we interested in, like, do we need just, like, a bunch of, like, cheese pies, like, whatever? We go to Doremos, which has the best garlic knots. Does somebody in the family want, like, a specialty pie, like a barbecue chicken pizza, which I feel like is blasphemous? Like, then we go to Mario's. Like, it's multiple... Multiple. Oh, do we want a grandma's pie? There's a different place for. There's that. like a spreadsheet of like toppings, like style of dough, and like there's a matrix. But it's in, it's implicit. Like you all just know. Oh yeah, like I got off the ferry a couple of, uh, like a month ago. I was at my parents. I got off the ferry. My parents picked me up, 
And my mom's like, what do you want for dinner? I'm like, you don't, I mean, I always only want pizza, right? Like my mom's like, I know we already called in the orders to Emilio's. <laughs> it's uh, on the way home. <laughs> we love that. We love that intuitive. I don't know how we got onto Long Island pizzas, to be quite honest. I like honestly don't know what the like line was that got us here. McGruff the Crimes. <laughs> <laughs> I take full blame for that. <laughs> we needed a Hanley family like like interlude. I can't believe McGrove that we McGruff kind of was a digression on its own. Then here we are using that to talk about the different pizza places. Okay, of Daniel's parents. All right, Stan. Stan. Also loves McGruff the Crime Dog, as far as we know. Probably, like, gave Matthew some McGruff the Crime Dog paraphernalia. One million percent. But Stan says that he's not a hero to Henry. Like, so there's this moment of self-realization, self-hatred, self-reflection, self-whatever. Depressed Stan rears his ugly head here. Exactly. And then also the other, like, and Stan is, like, clearly not impressed with himself. Like, again, with, like, the the award, which you have called in our outline, the participation. Let's just put it this way. Like I've had offices around campus that have been like, thanks for helping out with this thing on campus that have given me nicer certificates than what Stan gets for like shooting, I guess shooting Dameron and thus saving like the world bank people. I don't even, you know, I literally could print out a nicer certificate. So Uh, I literally have had students make fake certificates for things that including one, like, that I'm literally looking at right now, like tapes to the file cabinet in the office that are nicer than what Stan gets from the FBI. But the other thing, so Stan, I mean, like this is, I guess, like recognition that Stan's good at his job, question mark. And like, again, (laughs) unclear. Um, This entire episode like makes that unclear. But we do get, and you said this earlier, that Larrick says to Kate, like, uh, like you're good at your job, right? Like, because she's, like, hidden the things. She hasn't, she's not giving it up. And I'm just, like, I'm fascinated by the juxtaposition between Stan sort of realizing that maybe he's not so good at this or that, like, the job actually impacts the way he lives his life, which yeah. I think he's been in denial about for a, a most of the season. For most of his adult professional life? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so then the, like, you're good at your job to Kate, like it, that feels weightier because of the, like, so much of the, like, is, are they, are they good at their job? Are they bad at their job? Like who's what? Um, it felt like the show was talking to me in that moment. Yeah. You called that line out, um, when we were prepping the episode and it's, it's a key line. Yeah. It's also notable that Stan is hanging out now with his actual son. Matthew is away and he's hanging out with Henry And in the scene where Stan and Sandy have this, like, are we breaking up conversation? Like, let's be honest. We've all been there. I've been there. (laughs) Um, Sandy comes back and is like, oh, is Matthew here? Matthew's not there. Danielle, where is Matthew? Matthew's at Harry's house. (laughs) That's free. We actually got a... Uh, an inadvertent direct Harry Styles reference in this episode. In episode Harry Styles reference. Yeah. Time is a flat circle. And I had to alert Danielle to. Yeah, the, I didn't pick that I up, felt. But- Usually you're just brilliant, and that's like my only moment of disappointment ever on the American side of this podcast is that you didn't pick up the Harry's house. Line. I'll take it. I mean, like, 
as you have written in our outline, Matthew is a musician. (laughs) So I think that that means that there's a timeline. There we go. A timeline in which Matthew is like, yeah, obviously he's too old for this, but is like a producer or like a record exec at whatever label Harry Styles is at and knows Harry Styles. I feel into that. He's like, oh, I, I have a great idea for your album album name. My my BFF in high school was Harry. I would always say I was at Harry's house. Let's call the album Harry's house. I can, I know that you're not a Harry Styles fan. Because, I, I enjoy Harry Styles. Oh wait wait. <laughs> I know that you're not like a diehard Harry Styles fan. Not that you dislike him, but yeah. that you're not you're not a what in the parlance is called a Harry, which. I am also not, but I know that you're not a crazy fan because you have deigned to attribute the name of his album to someone other than him. <laughs> oh, obviously he like it's I give make him people real angry. <laughs> I give him like actual a, a tour cred. Um, yeah, I'm just yeah, schooling yeah. out this hypothetical yeah. like no, no, no. Does just... Harry Styles exist in the universe? Future universe projection of the Americans. I like Matthew as a future music exec for that like maybe is the one who like brings Harry Styles in. I'm just not willing to give him creative cred on the <laughs> Fair enough. This seems like a rabbit hole <laughs> we've gone down once again. What, <laughs> what, what, what Long Island pizza place would Danielle take Harry Styles to in the hypothetical scenario is the where they pick up a McGruff stuffed animal along the way is I think the question. There you go. There yeah. you go. Do you want to answer that question? No, because I'm not interested in dating Harry Styles. Okay. I just, like, want him to be beautiful and produce beautiful music. Okay. Fair. Fair. That's fair. <laughs> One thing that has been a current that we could have talked about and have touched on in various ways mm-hmm. all throughout the entirety of the Americans, although we get more of it in season two, that I think really is a more obvious contrast here in this episode is the design contrast between we spend a lot of time at FBI headquarters, a little bit less so than usual in this episode. We spend a lot of time in the Soviet embassy and particularly the KGB side of the Soviet embassy, a little bit more so than usual in this episode. FBI counterintelligence division, at least is cubicles, like very Americans, eighties capitalist office space set up. Mm -hmm. And in contrast, the Soviet embassy is, of course, there's a lot of wood. There's a lot of dark colors. There's a much more lived-in feeling. It feels a lot less sterile. The, like, secret room is not a technology, like, conference room, secret room. It's, like, there's big wooden sliding doors, and there's, like, a beautiful big table and all of this. And Arkady's office is much more inviting and homey than... Gad's offices and so on and so forth. So what do you think we get from the show's contrasting of the FBI and Soviet interior design? Yeah. I mean, I think like the thing that jumped out to me when you pointed out the, the sort of distinction between the two is like, there is a kind of, it flips what we typically associate the aesthetic with, right? The like lushness of the Soviet embassy against the sparseness of the American, of the FBI office. Like we associate lushness with capitalism, with like the American dream, right? Like we associate sparseness, at least like the way that it's constructed 
through the show, right? We associate sparseness with the communist ethos, right? Like not, not, not buying the luxury car, right? Mm-hmm. Like not wanting the material goods. Yeah. It's like a historicity to the space, yeah. right? And like a stickiness to the accumulation of time, affect, objects, memory, nostalgia, all of these things that is allowed in the Soviet spaces. At least the official ones like the embassy, like the Residentura, you know, granted, we also see the like prison slash research lab that Anton and Vasily are at where there's not quite the same lovely design. Okay. So we go from one aesthetic thing that the show is doing to another. And that is, I was really into the kind of flourish, the visual flourish of the meeting location and the camera work when Philip and Fred meet, which is a short scene. We only get one scene between the two of them. They're probably linked together for about 90 seconds or so, but they're walking around like abandoned grain silos or something. Yeah. Like kind of worn down, kind of been like reclaimed by nature, quote unquote. And it was just like a really beautiful setting. And I wanted to shout it out. The setting was unusual, which I liked. And also the camera angles were like, there was a lot of shooting from below. Yeah. Felt like the scene and the discussion loomed large, Mm -hmm. which it did, right? Like it's the the inflection point for all of the stuff that's happening. Yeah, as you've pointed out. Um, And there's perhaps a connection that like, granted the actual scenery is different, but I'm remembering the discussion we had with Lily about... Fred and Philip meeting like at the boardwalk by the ocean, which also puts yeah. them in a different setting for their meeting. So I enjoyed yeah. that. Well, and they're always in a different setting, which is, mm-hmm. which makes sense, but mm-hmm. also that we keep seeing the different settings and the different meetings. Like I think it, it adds a sense of like longevity to the relationship. Yes. Great point. Great point. Yeah. Which I like, but also yeah. I am fearful for Fred. So Fair enough. Some bonus dossier content. (laughs) Everyone's going to (laughs) die. Can I add some sound design notes to our discussion of some good shots that we liked and good design? So there's two in particular that they capture when Anton is in his bedroom or cell, depending on how we look at it, and in the hallway at the Soviet facility in the USSR, they really, like, cranked up the wind in the sound design like that I thought played nicely with the sparseness of the establishing shot in that scene of, like, it's winter, there's snow everywhere, there's just this facility. So I appreciate the sound design notes there. And then also, usually I'm, like, watching this on my TV at night, but I was watching this during during the day today, so I can't see my TV screen when there's it's sunny out. So I was watching it on my computer with headphones in. And I picked up on the sound design of when... Philip goes to visit Skeevers. Like you can tell there's like such a lived reality to this that you can tell that they're on like a ground floor apartment because of the sound design. You can hear like the sound of children playing very, very faintly in the background when I was listening to it with headphones on. And I just thought that was like a very cool sound design thing. I didn't catch that, but I, I appreciate that. I, I just, it like makes me appreciate the details, yeah, you know, for sure. And then can I give one okay boomer gloss oh, entry? 
We love. Jared, it's too icy for you to be riding your bike, my friend. I get you don't have a car. You want to have some mobility, but you're going to like, you got to go meet Kate. You can't crash your bike in the slush and the ice on your way there. My dude. And like, it's, will, it's not like, a, it's not a fat tire bike. It's like, a, I'm a teenager. I've got like a cruiser situation. Yeah. It's like my bike doesn't have gears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But not in a cool I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> right. Not in a Brooklyn uh, borrowed nostalgia. Part of the remembered early aughts way, correct? <laughs> oh, my God. Just a clue about the origins of the name of the segment that we're going to right now, borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered 80s. Uh, Danielle, you want to start us off? Yeah, I do want to start us off uh, with uh, back to uh, the Henry and Stan conversation, it does feel like very borrowed nostalgia for like to do an interview with your neighbor instead yeah. of like, I don't know, looking up something in Encyclopedia Britannica because <laughs> those are the only two sources. Like you couldn't look yeah. at the internet. Yeah, no Wikipedia. <laughs> so that feels like Henry funny. not on ARPANET. Henry not on ARPANET. <laughs> he would he would love it if he was. If the neighbors had it in their house, he would have been on ARPANET. <laughs> yeah, that's maybe he's actually a spy and he was trying to see if they had ARPANET. From your you're, you're right though. Like Henry doing a project on the neighbor does feel extremely yeah. It's also it's like the only person he knows that's not his dad. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh my Which dad works like, for the travel agency and this guy's an FBI. And agent. my mom works for the travel yeah. agency. All of their friends are travel agents. They're friends. I don't have the kids ever met a f- parent friend? No. That's not the parents Stan. don't have friends. Yeah, that's not Stan or Sandy. Um Oh my god. Yeah. I think also in a similar eighties category, while we're on the subject, Stan's emotional communication style. It's like screaming. It's giving very, I'm 5% more emotionally in touch with myself than somebody would have been like rich or like fairly wealthy white man in a marriage would have been in the sixties, but it's only 5% at the very best moment in generally. So it's like, there's a tiny bit more Stan emotional communication (laughs) that's happening, but not really. And that's giving 80s to me. It's like very tiny bit. Yeah, that is very 80s vibes. Um, it's like unwittingly 80s, right? Like yeah, precisely, <laughs> precisely. Um, and then you want to talk a little bit about Dirtbag Philip? Yeah, so Dirtbag Philip, he's his disguise for this week is not totally dissimilar from his disguise when he's meeting with Fred, but this is Vietnam vet Ted. Yeah. Who is like swiping wallets and then like throwing down three hundred dollar bills at the clinic for right. John Skeever's cancer meds? Has the like kind of ratty hair, but now with like a big bushy beard. Yeah. Um. Honestly, like you're right that this is like major eighties, and there's something about the like Vietnam vet of yeah. him mm-hmm. of his character that also feels very very eighties, like. Maybe not nostalgia, but, like, reference mm-hmm. point for sure. Mm-hmm. Should we keep going on that note and turn to minor character of the week? 
Yeah, I mean, that brings us right into minor character of the week, does yeah. it not? There's really only one great option this week, and it is John Skeevers, played by Jelko Ivanik, or Ivanik, um, I'm not quite sure. Um, but Skeevers is the person that Fred turns Philip onto as a former fellow employee who had worked on some slightly stealth spy plane technology. Yeah. Got cancer, accused the defense contractor of giving him cancer because of that work, but might be the hookup that Philip needs for this uh, radar absorbent material ram. And so that what that's what leads Philip to pull, you know, run this con on John Skeevers, on Jelgovanek at the clinic, and then show up at his apartment at the end of the episode with soup. The soup part is like really is very insistent on him. Having the soup. I'm like, is there poison in the soup? <laughs> also a very legitimate question. Oh my God. But like, there can't be poison in the soup because like, we need him. Yes. And he's already not healthy. Correct. So we need him to be like, at least alive for long enough. Yeah. Like this can't be like a, we poisoned your son vibe from season one. Yeah. Because like, they need him to be functioning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he also doesn't seem like someone that you could strong arm into helping you. Mm-hmm. It seems like the strong arming is like psychological here. It is because at the clinic, Ted's willing to entertain some of Skeever's conspiracy theories a little bit. Yeah. Including maybe while also making fun of the alien possibility, which I found amusing. And yeah, then offers the kind of genuine version of reaching out that is then followed up by pressure of like, give me some information and I'll give you some money. So you have something for your kids, something to leave them with other than like heartbreak or whatever it is that he says um, at the end. And that's where we get the bat reference. That's where we get the, I was working. We figured out that we couldn't do like, material tiles to put on the plane. So we had to have like iron balls that were like dipped in something else. And that's how he thinks he got cancer because it killed all the bats. There are like too many layers there, but also just the right amount of layers that it's like, Oh, this dude is legit, right? There's something about how quickly Philip gets his name from Fred. Mm -hmm. That's like a little bit concerning, Mm -hmm. but then the like knowledge that this guy has about the technology feels more concrete than the like propeller stuff from earlier on. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And so just to clarify, the American's wiki does inform us that it is quote microscopic iron balls that absorb the radar and hide the planes. I said this to you in prep. I'm going to say it now, but like stealth technology is very like Avengers vibes. Mm, Pass. (laughs) (laughs) like i do not want to engage (laughs) it's giving me very play-doh vibes like ring of gaiji's vibes ring of gaiji's the original stealth technology i'll take that (laughs) i think we can agree on that you know we can't get through an episode of this without mentioning play-doh obviously (laughs) who we both love and adhere to all of his views every single one yeah especially (laughs) me apparently Especially the forms. <laughs> <laughs> I wow, think that's a signal. That <laughs> a signal to go to the cave, Danielle. 
We are in the cave. Um, okay. We're, we are always already in the cave. We, we literally, we are always already in the cave. Um, <laughs> we recently had a guest on this show who is not a theorist and we we're like, we apologize in advance for always being in the cave. I mean, if you're listening to both the Americans and MCU yeah. pods, as you should, then you, uh, enjoy that conversation with Nick Carnes, even if you yeah. like waited an hour and 45 minutes to get to that point about Plato. Listen, it is what it is. It is we what it is. We're like, cave. yeah, it's cave. <laughs> Is the whole podcast just an excuse to be in the cave? Yeah, it is, but it's fine. Um, okay, so today in the cave, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, I want to think about a like living contemporary political Amazing. theorist. So today in the cave, we're bringing Sharon Krause, who is a professor of political theory at Brown University. She was the former dissertation chair of one of my dissertation committee members, Um but when she left to go to Brown, she also left his committee. But um, I want to take her idea of non-sovereign agency into the cave. And this brings us back to something that we were speaking about in our general discussion. It brings us back to thinking about Nina and Nina's role. And I think something that we have said before that that I am sort of thinking about in my own work, this idea of limited agency. Yeah. I think Nina offers a version of this. And I think Krause's work perhaps helps us get at some of the significance of that. So I just want to give a brief gloss of Krause's uh, work and then we'll, we'll bring it back to Nina. Okay. Wonderful. Amazing. Okay. So um, probably the most common way to think about agency is to think about it as like intentional choice and control over action. And oftentimes it's thought of in, in sort of a like personal sovereignty way, like so that you control your choice and your action, right? Everything that you do is attributed to you as an individual. And one of the things that Krause wants to push back against is that this account fails to account for like broader structural and other more complicated factors that also impact the choices we make and the actions we are able to take. And so um, she advocates for what's called non-sovereign agency. So it's not just about the individual um, Agency is still about initiative and impact or in her parlance, the efficacy of one's actions, but Non-sovereign agency allows her to sort of emphasize and and understand the sort of intersubjective and intercorporeal um, exchanges that are – so it's not just – that we engage in these social practices or that like we, there are individual factors that impact agency, but it's all of these things together. Excellent. <laughs> so like basically social and material factors are not only like not only impact agency, but they're actually constitutive mm -hmm. of the forms of agency we are able to engage in yes. as people. Okay. So if agency for Krause is a socially distributed phenomenon, which I think that's what non-sovereign agency is, right? It, yes. it decenters the individual um, and brings in all these other factors as constitutive factors. I think that helps us understand um, Nina and the, and the ways in which Nina's 
decision making, the control over her actions is not only constrained by others, but like her choices are constituted by the like web of networks she finds herself in. Mm. And in particular, the intersection of the sort of like, we'll call it the Soviet web and the American web and how those things are sort of like pushing against, pushing and pulling against each other. Truly brilliant. What an explanation. What a like tie into Nina at the end. What a way to like use the Krause to think about Nina. It's just great. Um, really, really stellar work from Prof Hanley today. <laughs> and I think that Krause is the right person for this particular episode vis-a-vis your explanation because one of the things that Danielle and I have talked about so much throughout the first two seasons or last season and a half, or let's say from the moment at which Nina tells and confesses to Arcadi and is like, let me become a triple agent this episode is Nina is doing the most that she can within the limited, within the conditions of agency that she encounters, which to your yeah. point are con- constituted by these various other actors forms, materialities, embodiments, like psychic and affective and emotional registers, all of these sorts of things. And this is the episode where those constitutive elements of her agency are most constraining or most limiting. And I think that Danielle and I have rightfully celebrated these are the ways in which Nina is trying to, like, claim or assert some kind of agency, even in this non-sovereign way given the conditions of which she is a part. And this is like the episode where I think that meets its limit. I think that that's right. And I think like when we were chatting before, like thinking about Nina and her agency as limited, like agency is always already limited, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's part of Krause's argument here is like thinking about, about agency through the lens of personal sovereignty is like silly because there are all of these other factors. But Nina really illustrates not only the, like, limitedness of agency, but in particular, the way in which all of these other structural, material, psychic, emotional, affective, all of these other factors constitute the kinds of decisions she is able to make and not make. And I think this is the episode where we see her feel the constraints of that constitution mm-hmm. exactly nina the show's best political theorist and most existential I mean, character uh, one million percent i feel like this is a nina stan podcast yeah obviously <laughs> like are we broadcasting also from- it's funny that it's a nina is it a nina stan podcast or a nina stan podcast are we broadcasting i'm ignoring that are we broadcasting from the Soviet embassy? We might be. <laughs> uh, there's, oh they would have been interested in Plattsburgh, New York for actually most of the entire existence of the Soviet Union. There used to be an Air Force base on which I now, I now live on the former Air Force base. Um, oh, but, that's why there's the, yeah, like yeah. the circle. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but they closed it down in the nineties when uh, they closed a bunch of bases around the country. Well, you know that Binghamton, New York was like the third most important target for the Soviets or something like that. And that's like a thing that Cornell told us a lot of times when I was like a freshman in college. I did not know that, but I mean, are we talking like research facilities or? Yeah, I think like it has to do with like research facility and like not just research, but also like R and D, right? Like, so 
there was a lot of weapon building happening in Binghamton? Look, I mean, like, I grew up in Colorado, right? Like, NORAD was not far away. Like, Rocky Flats is a former, like, nuclear facility. There's, like, missile silos all throughout. Not necessarily Colorado itself, but you get a little further north. Do you know which state is directly north of Colorado? I knew you were going to ask me this, and I feel angry about it. And of course, I do not know. <laughs> Wyoming. Utah? <laughs> Wyoming. Utah is to the west of Colorado. Um. Colorado is not far. Oh, well. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to put you on geography corner, but I, I couldn't. My sister and I were just talking about this while we were in Europe. Kate was like, I think I can name all the states if I got a blank map, but I couldn't put the states where they need to be. And I was like... Can't do either of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll save we'll save geography corner for if Kate makes a, another appearance, and we can talk. Oh yeah, I mean we can, like, we can remember some states. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I've got up until the Mississippi River down cold. Very cool. Everything else is just like squares. I, I will say, I'm not sure until we discussed it. Vermont, New Hampshire was maybe at one point a, a difficulty. Which one yes, which? Yeah, but now I know because we were in Vermont. Yeah, definitely. I we know we drove through almost the entirety of Vermont north to south. I'm very excited because uh, I'm doing this road trip to Montreal for APSA, yeah. as we've talked about. But I believe one of our friends who follows the podcast on Twitter, so one of our friends who just started a job at U- University of Vermont, just moved up to Burlington, um, we're going to pick, he's like our last stop. We're going to pick him up and then. Amazing. And then you'll take the ferry and you'll get off in Plattsburgh or you can go, you can just go up into Canada on the Vermont side of the lake. This I'm is the uh, others who are, I'm not, not, not your drive. decision to make. No. Well, let's chat a about your friend who's at UVM and B about, um, driving Montreal apps plans off air. You mean it's not good like podcast fodder? What are you talking about? (laughs) You're like, I will say, everybody stay tuned because we're not going to do it in this episode, but starting next episode, we're going to have theory shifts for you. Yeah, but that was not just a bit. That started as a bit, and after about 30 seconds, Danielle and I looked at one another in the eye through Zencasters, mediated through the intern, through ARPANET, and we're like, this is real. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm obsessed with it. I'm pumped for theory ship. A million percent. Um, we've come to the end of our episode. Miraculously. Miraculously. It's a long one this time. There yeah. are no, no less than seven digressions. <laughs> most of my fault. McGrath um, the kind dog, our patron saint. <laughs> honestly, I think I've been wanting to have a podcast so that I can mention McGruff the crime dog. Like it's just <laughs> part of my soul that feels like more complete right now. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm, I'm here for it. Amazing. Okay, well, thanks as always to producer Amy. Yeah. Um, And up next in the feed, we have our final uh, Moon Knight episode. John is very excited. So that'll drop on Tuesday. It's Gods and Monsters. And then next Thursday, we've got American Season 2, Episode 12, Operation Chronicle. Can we give the listeners a sneak preview of Moon Knight 1-6? We're going to the cave with a max. We won't say which one, but a Max is going to the cave if I have anything to say about it. You have everything to say about it. And <laughs> if you listen to this episode carefully, you can probably figure out what Max it is. Great hint. Great hint. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Tweet us. When you know the answer and you've listened this long, you get a shout out on Gods and Monsters. Yeah. I think that I like that. We can't do that because this will drop before. (laughs) I know. Okay. We'll leave it in. We'll we'll leave Um, it in and we'll shout them out on Twitter or I can add. It's not hard for me to add. No one's going to shout us out, but we'll leave it in anyway. Okay. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It was created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.